Hey there, Disclaudience, and welcome to episode 22 of Fully Disclosed Podcast with Brad Lose. This episode features Hattie Knight, who is a human resources professional and former Navy air traffic controller, which uh, actually led to some very interesting conversation. She recently wrote a book called Against Company Policy, which is a workplace murder mystery and is very intriguing. I highly suggest anyone listening, if you are into murder mysteries whatsoever, definitely check out her book. You can find any information you'd like to know about her at her website at hattynight.com that's h-a-t-t-y-e-k-n-i-g-h-t dot com and i'll include a link to that in the description as always so sit back relax and enjoy my conversation with the fantastic hattie knight and also enjoy our intro music which is by egg nebula called dark I stress that to anybody listening. Um, the book is against company policy, and uh, why don't you start off by giving uh, a little bit of info about yourself and why you decided to write this book, and then a little bit of information about the book itself. Um, sure. Um, against company policy. First of all, let me tell you about myself. My name yes. is Hat Knight, and I am a human resources professional, and have been in human resources for um, over 15 years. I've been a professional, most recently in employee and labor relations, which is the branch um, that is not the warm and fuzzy part of HR. Uh It is actually the part of HR that nobody wants to talk to or deal with. Okay. Because we are the branch that investigates incidents, we discipline employees, and so um, that's always a challenge because um, no one likes us because we're not warm and fuzzy HR. We are the compliance and the ones that tell you that you're not doing your job. Right, right. Well, that's needed, though, especially in management. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, I consult with a lot of managers on a daily basis on ways to improve employee performance and um, address misconduct issues. Mm-hmm. Can I, I'll throw out, I think, uh, the number one thing that they have to do, respect their employees. I think that might be the number one thing most managers are missing with their employees. Definitely. Um, that is one of the biggest problems um, is that they don't know how to manage them. They're not really sure how to do so. Mm-hmm. And so it's my job to sh- um, give them creative ways on how to address those issues with their employees. Um, Because we spend too much money hiring and training employees to just let them go all willy-nilly. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to make certain that we do everything we can possibly do to change and improve that uh, employee in order for them to be the best they can be and give us what we need. Treat them as an investment. That's right. It is an investment. It's a very costly investment. It, on average, it costs around $46,000 for every new employee. Now, is that uh, industry specific or is that just a, is that a general? That's a general. Okay. General cost with benefits, salary, um, training. Um, that's the low side of most jobs because, you know, you figure the average person is probably getting paid around $45,000, So then you add their benefit package as well as the training that you're, you're looking at easily six figures. Right. Okay. So uh, what, what leads uh, somebody – because I uh, see um, it also – you appeared in the first season of House of Cards? Yes. Uh, How did you get into that? It's funny because – a friend of mine was going to an audition, and um, I was going, I read about the audition, and I was going to go because I wanted to hand out cards because my book had just come out, and okay. I wanted to give everybody in line one of the cards. Then mm-hmm. um, what happened, when I was there, they asked me, because I was dressed like I, I had just come from church, and they said, oh, you're dressed for the church scene. 
um, fill this out and um, we'll take your pic. Do you have your picture? And I said, fill this out. And they said, yeah, aren't you here to be an extra? And I said, sure. Yeah. So I ended up filling out the card and actually getting a call back. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up being in season, you know, season one, yeah. uh, the third episode. And we filmed for 16 hours straight. <laughs> but it now- was a wonderful experience. Right, and filming for 16 hours uh, as an extra, though, like, is it, didn't that get just a little boring after a while? Well, they fed us, um, they shuttled us from place to place. Um, and the one scene in which I'm in the church scene, that one actually took about two and a half hours to film just that brief five-minute um, scene in the, in the show. Right. But I had the opportunity. I was sitting behind Kevin Spacey because he came and sat down while they were yes. around some of the scenery. And we rubbed elbows, literally, because I put my elbow up at the same time. <laughs> elbow up, And I told him that we were married because he had touched my elbow. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's, see, that's what I was going to ask you if you got to meet him because he's, I a, do. he's definitely a guy that uh, I have a lot of respect for as an actor. Yeah. He's very, he was very on point. He knew his lines. He came in and delivered. He could go from teasing me to getting up there and pretending like he was such a grieving father, lost child. And I just thought, wow, what kind of talent is that? I know. Like, there's a reason why those guys that are at the top of the acting profession are there. Because yeah. they can do things that pe- that normal people just can't do. Right. And they make it look so easy, but yeah. they're so professional and everything. And it was just very, it was a wonderful opportunity. And then I got actually got a call back. Um, they wanted to bring me in as the shipbuilder's wife, the shipbuilder number three's wife okay. for um, another um, scene or for another show. And unfortunately, I was in the middle of an EEO case, uh, equal, um, equal employment opportunity case. So I couldn't. Oh, okay. I couldn't take it, but it was a speaking part, and I would have got paid more money, and I would have had more screen time. <laughs> See, now that actually brings up, because you just said about being in an equal opportunity uh, case, how mm, how prevalent are actual uh, grievances of equal employment, and how much is it perception? Well, I mean, you got to think about it. It's a process. Yeah. It is- process and a procedure for people who feel um, that they are at the end of their rope, that there must be some reason that the employer is treating them differently than they do other people. Okay. And it's a process. A lot of people file EEO cases, um, especially those that are getting disciplined or they're not getting a performance award or they were let go after a long period of trying to correct their behavior, their final opportunity to get resolved is to file an EEO case. The the challenge with that is, is that EEO is overwhelmed. You'd be surprised. There aren't that many categories of how you could discriminate against somebody. You've got your gender, you've got your race, your ethnicity, you know, your, now we have added um, gender identification. Disability has expanded. Mm-hmm. Even then, it's on the employee to prove that the employer did purposely set out to treat them different. Right. And that's not always the case. If I have um, my managers have a long document filled with memorandums that they gave to the employee, emails that asked them to do their job, complaints, attendance issues, all of these things they take with them to court and they show it to the judge and the judge says, well, would you have treated everybody else that was similarly situated the same way? And the employer's going to say yes, because the case that I had for their neighbor, here's a case for somebody that was three cubicles over and then all they need to do is pull out one that they treated exactly the same that's different than they are. Mm-hmm. And then that's the end of it. Well, now, how many have you ever met, um, come across any management that used this as a way to circumvent the fact that they were not following equal opportunity uh, laws? 
Well, what I find is there aren't a lot of managers that purposely set out to discriminate. Okay. What most employees forget is that there is nothing that prevents a, an employer from hating you. There is nothing illegal about them not liking you. There is nothing illegal about them treating you less than they treat somebody else, let's say, because they belong to the country club that their sister belongs to. Right. There's nothing illegal about that. Mm -hmm. When it becomes illegal is when I purpose in my mind to get rid of you or do something to you based on one of those categories. Right. For instance, if you're a 55-year-old, and I'm 57, and I hire all 20-year-olds, then you can say in your mind that obviously I prefer young people. And that's okay. fine. There's nothing illegal about that. But if I bring in one of those 20-year-olds, fire you tomorrow without cause, and put that 20-year-old in your spot, then you have the case, possibly, for making the case for discrimination. Okay. And what about um, cases where it's like a am a more qualified applicant than the other individual who got the job? Have you ever ran into those? Oh, yes, all the time. Because people forget it's not just qualifications that they're looking for. It mm -hmm. is a big part of why you're hired. But employers are looking for the best fit for the team. Yeah. You could be a Ph.D. in mathematics, have flown to the moon and back. But if I am hiring customer service folk and you don't know how to have a conversation that isn't on a doctorate level, right. you're not going to be the best person on my target team. It doesn't matter that you have a Ph.D. and are mm -hmm. overqualified when I'm looking to fill out. Who's going to greet my customers? Who's going to say hello the way we'd like them to? Who's going to treat them like they are the top of the mountain when they come in the door? That is not the Ph.D. candidate unless you can convince me otherwise. Right. And I also have an issue where I think a lot of qualifications amongst people are not comparable. You're trying to compare apples and oranges a lot of times. Right. And that's that's exactly right, because what they're looking at. Well, I got a bachelor's degree. Well, the job is in human resources. You have a bachelor's degree in engineering. You have no experience in human resources. Mm -hmm. I have somebody who has a high school diploma who, when they came out of high school, went and became an HR assistant. Then they got promoted to an HR specialist. Then they got promoted to an HR assistant manager. Then they became manager, then they became director, but they only had a high school diploma. Well, guess what? The person with that high school diploma has the experience I need to take over HR. Right. And because um, I do now I work. It seems as though you and I uh, deal with managers in two more different environments, though. I'm more dealing with managers of like uh, restaurants, pizza shops, um, things of that sort, and it seems like you're more dealing with managers in professional situations. Well, I've dealt with managers in both. I used to work okay. for a school system where, you know, um, we hire support services personnel. Those are your food service, your custodians, um, anybody that's not a teacher or a principal. Okay. But I had the most fun dealing with the managers of the custodians and food service workers because they had creative issues. Right. Um, we dealt with people who couldn't read, and reading was sort of important when you're mixing chemicals. You need to know what that sign says. Right. Um, we dealt with issues where there were people who didn't want to go to work because they just didn't feel like it. And then when they got fired, they were confused because in their mind, they were the best employee possible three days out of five days. Right. So we had different kinds of issues. So I've dealt with every level of employee in human resources, from temporary substitute employees all the way through white collar um, ex senior executive service. And I can tell you people are people, whether they're custodians or whether they're senior executives, people are misbehave at every level. It's just right. a matter of whether or not they believe they can get away with it and whether we catch them. Right. 
And I think a lot of times, too, people mis- people will misbehave if they're perceiving that they are uh, being targeted unfairly. Um, and a lot of times it's just a perception that they have, and it, it's not necessarily true. And issues can be avoided just simply by explaining to them what's happening. Right. And then, too, it's about communication. That's yes. one of the biggest issues that I have with supervisors uh-huh. because they don't want to have those conversations. Right. There are often times where I hear, well, Hattie, they just ought to know how to do the job. They got uh-huh. hired to do this job. They should know how to do it. Well, you know, being a custodian at this job may not be mm-hmm. the same as a custodian at another job. Yep. So you're saying to yourself, well, they had the mop, they had the buff, they had the empty trash. Yes. But here you have this sophisticated system where they have the clock in, they have to log in, they have to use, they have to scan their badges. They have to right. be in a certain hallway at a certain time. They're not used to that. So you have to give them your expectations. You have to walk a person through a job. Tell mm-hmm. them how you want it done. Tell them what you expect from them. Tell them what it takes to be successful. Tell them when they're messing up. Tell them when they're doing a good job. Tell them, tell them, tell them. That's all I can say to managers. That is our biggest problem is a miscommunication. Especially in in a culture where people are working longer and longer hours for less and less money. So they've got more and more issues at home and stuff that they're trying to deal with because they're just more and more financially strapped and then tired on top of it because they're working longer and longer hours. Those those issues transfer over to work, and sometimes it just takes a little bit of empathy and understanding. Oh, my gosh, yes, please. You said the word there, empathy. It's amazing to me how managers can feel so put out by something as simple as an employee calling in sick. Right. Because like it's a personal attack against right, them. Right, right. Okay, first of all, they have leave that they can use. And if they do not have leave and you force them to come in and they don't come in because little Johnny has a fever of 103, right. he has leukemia, and this is <laughs> red flag, and if I don't get him to the emergency room, he can die. Right. And you're telling me for $7.50 an hour, <laughs> I should get on the bus, come all the way there, take care of whatever it is that can wait until tomorrow, because... <laughs> We're not dealing with life and death issues. Right. I'm not an air traffic controller. I'm not a doctor. And even if I was, there's somebody else that can do the job. And those are the situations that infuriate people the most. Right. Because those are the dehumanizing aspects. Well, I explain to managers, and I I spend a lot of time, because I deal with union officials as well as managers, and I spend a lot of time trying to remind managers that they are people too right and that the measure that they use can and will be used against them Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. if you get sick or your little johnny gets sick i'm going to recommend that they fire you because it was good enough for your seven dollar and fifty cents an hour employee it should Mm -hmm. be good enough for you even though you have not been out all year long and little Johnny is sick today when we have a very important meeting. You should have planned better. I'm sorry. You're fired. Right. That you is should have planned on your child's illness. That's right. That's my <laughs> recommendation for you. And then they uh-huh. surprise. And they say, well, Hattie, how could you say that? Well, sir or ma'am, you said the same thing about your employee last week. And I said to you, the same measure that you use will be used against you. You yep. said fine. So I'm saying now you're fine. Right. And that that doesn't go over well. I don't know why they don't they don't appreciate it and they don't receive it in the manner in which they think their employees should. Right. I have an employee that has been faithful. They come in every day, they don't complain. We went through downsizing. There used to be 20 of us, there are now 6 of us. We're still expected to do the same job with the uh-huh. same, with these many people. You haven't given us a break. I don't know how my performance is. 
I haven't received a bonus, and God knows how. <laughs> what what's what is bonus? That word's foreign. Is that Spanish? Yeah, yeah, bonus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's amazing to me, and it's sad at the same time that right. we forget about the human and human resources. We Absolutely. forget about the people doing the job because, again. They don't lay off management first. They lay off nope. low-hanging fruit first. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. when they get rid of the low-hanging fruit and the manager is left to do the job, miraculously, it cannot be done yep. because they need help. And so they go and they petition and get additional staff. Well, if you couldn't do it by yourself, then what makes you think Jane or Joe can do it by right. themselves? And so, again, it needs to be a balancing act. Mm-hmm. And we have to, I spend most of my day reminding managers that you need these people. Do you think, um, do you think maybe it's uh, a values thing in our society that maybe we as society have started valuing, let's say, like greed and money and making a profit more than treating somebody well? Well, I think... I don't know if I would say a value. What I would say is a cultural shift. And maybe yeah. maybe that's sort of the same thing. But right, somewhere right. around Reaganomics, and I'm not uh-huh. aiming, you know, ex- uh-huh. Reagan, but just that time period. Yeah, Reagan did many great things, but there were a lot of horrible great. things that came out of that period too. Right. There were some horrible things, which one of those was bottom line. Yes. All we care about is the bottom line. And if we can get to the bottom line with less people, we do not reward loyalty. We can nope. get rid of them, bring in younger, smarter, cheaper labor. Yep. Again, remember, we started, that's when we started sending stuff overseas and out of the uh-huh. because it was cheaper. And yep. people got greedy at the top of those organizations. And when it didn't trickle down, we were angry. We, we right. protested. But still are. Yeah, we're still <laughs> protesting. But now that they've started to realize that managers, if they get the benefit of some of that bottom line thinking, then they're not so they they sort of toe the line and they right. sort of keep their employees in line. And if not, they're the middle guy between that senior manager and that mm-hmm. employee. So anything bad just rolls downhill, but there's somebody in between um, the CEO and that person now. And so now you've got a whole staff full of people that can do this for you. And you can make bad decisions and bad choices, and no one ever gets you got people there to cover your ass now. That's right. That's right. And I think that's where we started to go wrong. And I think as um, HR became a profession, as recognized as a profession, rather than just being pencil pushers and and handing out bad letters. When we started yeah. training managers, when we started um, holding them accountable and reminding them of what they hired us to do, then the tide changed. And I think right. we moved into those total quality management, Lean Six Sigma, and all of those teams. Once the Japanese proved that you can berate your employees as long as you you pay them well and you reward yeah. them with gift certificates right. of non-monetary <laughs> non-monetary items, yeah. then yeah. we just went we went all in at that point and that's where the cultural shift uh-huh. again yeah. we're not the same as the Japanese we no. don't respond the same way no, our we're culture is different culture. we're a different completely culture. different yeah you, we as a matter of fact I think our culture would respond to the exact opposite. Right. We would respond better with the pretty words than with the gift certificate because we see that as a, a slap in the face almost, like a bu- like a buy-off. Right, right. And again, you know, and then we went through another cultural change, you know, because that's when we decided to let everything have a cafeteria-style, buffet-style thing. Yeah. So then we went into um, buffet-style hiring mm-hmm. of folks. So pick the pick the benefits that you like. Pick the hours that you like. And then we went into this whole, you know, kumbaya period that it didn't last long, but it was, it was nice while it lasted, um, <laughs> where we just made the jobs. You had the Googles because that's when Google had come out and they were. Yeah. And, you know, Yahoo and all of those, you know, Steve Jobs came out and showed you can have fun and you can you let people come to work when they feel like it and they produce more. And uh-huh. to a degree, that's true. Yep. But. 
again, the bottom line kicks in. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to make some hard choices. Right. But well, if you about- look, there are companies though that do that. There's um, it's a I think it's a microchip manufacturing company in like Indiana, that's completely employee owned essentially. If you work there, you vote on every decision that the company makes, and they found that the employees there produce more than any other industry, any other job in their industry. Um, same way there's a bread factory in California where the CEO only makes like 500k a year and passes on what he doesn't make to his employees so they're making like six figures a year at a bread factory and they find that their production is so much higher than most other bread factories and it's probably because their employees are happy right but again it depends on the industry because if you're a manufacturing and that works when you're making widgets but when you're in a posi- when you're in the kind of organization that's all white collar kind of job, that's not going to work because somebody has to drive the engine. Somebody has to start the engine, drive the car, and get it going. You can't have 15 people trying to put their or 1,500 trying to put their hands on a steering wheel. That right. may not work in all. And that's the that's the fine line that or the juggling act that. CEOs have to do. That's why it's important to have a board of directors. It's important to have employee forums, um, employee-driven committees, having on there to participate. Because as you said, it's been proven, research has shown, that when employees feel that they have something vested in their jobs and they're recognized for their performance, and it doesn't have to be monetary. Again, it could be you're doing a great job, Jim. Jim, I really appreciate it. Standing up in a meeting and recognizing folks who have worked there 15 years, giving them that little $5 pin and, and putting it on their tie and walking around and having bragging rights saying, I've been here 27 years and whatever it is, um, making them feel like they're treasured, that they're important and that they matter. The work can be hard. The hours can be brutal. But research has shown that if, like you said, if employees feel that they have a vested interest, that they, are, are, that they matter, they will perform. And that's across the board in any industry. I just may, you know, with, I don't want it to seem like that, um, having that autonomy is going to work across the board, across industries. Because you've got to be careful yeah. because if you're making financial decisions, somebody's got to drive that engine. Somebody's got to make those hard choices. Um, otherwise, nothing gets done. It's easier in manufacturing because, again, we're producing products. All right. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit here. Um, is it you're an air traffic? You were an air traffic control tower supervisor yes. in the Navy. Yes. Were you actually in the Navy? Yes. Or did you I was just, in, were you contracted? Oh, I was in the Navy. I joined the Navy um, in 1987. Went off to boot camp in Orlando. Went to Millington, Tennessee for air traffic control school and came out number two in my class. I graduated number two, so I didn't get my first choice of duty station, which was Greece. I got my second choice, which was Puerto Rico. So uh, don't feel bad for me because I was stationed at Rosie Rhodes, Puerto Rico for my first three and a half years um, as an air traffic control (laughs) and then um, became air traffic control tower supervisor. It was a wonderful experience. It was horrible at the same time. Um, 1987 is when I joined the Navy, and it's amazing that they were still snapping bras. And um, <laughs> one of the things, because I'm African American, they said that I would never be, you know, African Americans couldn't be air traffic controllers. They could, I never forget this one, and it was a black guy that said it to me. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, we could teach monkeys sign language, but we can't teach black people air traffic control. I'll never forget that as long as I live. And I said to myself, I don't care what you say. Now that you said that, I'll be doggone if a monkey's going to be smarter than me. Right, right. Learn air traffic control. That's that's self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. That's that's white people telling him so much that black people can't do it that he starts to believe it too. Well, I, you know what? I don't think that was it actually. I actually think it was a motivational tool. Okay. You actually think he was just using that to rally you. Right, because I believe that he knew, he knew an air traffic control world, unfortunately, is not very brown. It's not very culturally diverse. Right. Um, I mean, there weren't a lot of Asians. There weren't a lot of Hispanics. It it just was not a brown world. Air traffic control is not a brown world. Um, And um, he wanted to motivate us. 
And that's that gunny sergeant. He did it. I mean, and he would spend long hours with us as long as we needed. We would be there after hours and he would, I mean, pound that stuff in our heads. And but the thing with air traffic control and one of the things that people don't understand is it takes you to get the picture in your own head. They can tell you out of the book all day long. But until you actually get it in your head and see the sky, however, that for me, it was picturing it as the freeway. Okay. when I drive, you can tell air traffic controllers by the way we drive our cars. And I (laughs) tell people this. If you could tell us because we're zipping in and out of traffic, we're looking at the weight of those uh, semi trailers that are driving. We're looking at the Maserati coming up on our left. We're looking at the Volkswagen in between us and the truck on the right. We're figuring out the weight, the speed, how fast they're going. Are they carrying a heavy load? Let's check them out on that hill. Oh, he's heavy. I can go around him, but I got to slow down to get behind that Maserati because he'll eat me up if he comes around on my left side. So that's how we picture it. That's how I pictured it in my mind. Right. And that's what made me a successful air traffic controller. That and the God complex. Sounds more like a ballet. Well, yeah, it's definitely a fine dance. But one of the things that we needed, there are certain personalities that work in air traffic control and others that don't. You have to be a very confident person. You have to believe that you know what you're doing regardless of what tells you otherwise. And Mm -hmm. for me personally, I was known as the sky goddess. And my philosophy was, if you listen to me, you lived... If you didn't, you die real easy Yeah. because it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what I believe. And if I tell you to do something, I'm telling you it's going to work because I have it figured out in my mind. Okay. And so I never crashed a plane. Now, I've had a plane crash on me because of mechanical failure. It was horrible, horrible accident. Um, 13, all members of the crew were killed. Um, and I was, I was actually leaving the tower. I had handed it off to a, a air force controller that was talking to him. And I was on my way out of the tower when the plane crashed and I had to turn around and relieve that person and then stay there until they cleared the runway and we diverted planes. It was horrible, horrible accident. Never wish that on anybody. Um, but right. something that I had to deal with. But I had the opportunity to do a lot of great things in, at Rosie Roads in Puerto Rico that's now closed. But I had the opportunity to launch the original U-2 bomber. I was there during Hurricane Hugo when we were talking to airplanes out of a portable marine tower that was swinging in the wind because our tower had gotten blown up in the uh, yeah. And um, I had the opportunity to launch... Um, aircraft to Panama and during the uh, original Desert Storm I had the opportunity to have 15 C5s come in and wanting to do the break and that thing went all the way out Uh, for those of you who don't know that's when a flight like if you see your F-14s coming in and they're smoking it's four of them coming together and then they break off and go around and come down and land well, imagine C-5s are one of the largest aircrafts known to man. And these things wanting to do uh, a break took them all the way almost to St. Thomas, which is 25 wow. miles from us. But it was a wonderful experience for them. And I, I just had a lot lot going on, and I loved it. I had paradrops. I would talk to people jumping out of airplanes. I've got helicopters doing touch and goes. I was, I, that was a wonderful experience for me. Wow. Well, as horrible as the experience was of that plane that crashed for you, do you think that an experience like that is almost necessary for an air traffic controller to make the situation real to them? I would hope not. I would hope. Okay. Um, I think what makes it real is almost that almost that. Okay. Uh, we've all had an almost. And, you know, some for, for some of us, it may have been a, a Cessna. It may have been any number of things. Um, letting the uh, fire truck come across the runway when somebody's on final approach and somebody else jumping in and making it, you know, fixing it for you. Um, there's always been a ch- there's always room for improvement. They we are very um, professional employees. We do a wonderful job. 
we handle a lot of stress under pressure and with grace and saving lives. Yeah. Uh, it's safer for them to fly a plane and land than it is for you to drive somewhere. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's necessary. But what I what I do say is that we're all prone to mistakes. But there's always a more experienced controller there that has the picture, which is what the control tower supervisor does. I'm responsible for everything in the air that I can see. Gotcha. And responsible gotcha. for every air traffic controller in that control tower working for me and making the, making sure I know everything that they're doing and I'm able to correct it all. So I, not only do I have to know what I'm doing, I got to figure out what that they know what they're doing and be able to correct it when I need to. So that's it, you know, and again, people say, oh, that's so stressful. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, not for me, because, again, I was a goddess. So as right, I was concerned, right. if they listen to me, everybody's going to be okay. How much How much of a shot to that god ego was that crash? Um, it wasn't for me, because, again, I had already handed them off. Okay. So it wasn't my crash, literally. So in your mind, it wasn't, nah, yours, wasn't it mine. Was, and it wasn't the okay. air traffic control I left in, in charge. It was honestly mechanical failure. So there was nothing anybody could have done. So you were able to resign to that right, fact. Right. Now, there have okay. been, um, like I said, it, it's, it was challenging. There was, um, I, I did have the opportunity to witness stuff that people will never see. For instance, I had a little uh, Cessna that was flying by. <laughs> and I said, oh, wow, because, you know, they talked to us. And he said, Rosie Tower, this is Cessna 53706. And I said, hi. I said, it looks like there's a cloud ahead into your ride. Looks a little fun. And before I could say me, the it was a <laughs> it was a tornado over the water, a water spout. It okay. had swirled down before I could say me and funny. It swirled down, hit the top of the plane, pushed it in the ocean, sucked it back up and went away. And the guy was like, oh, Rosie Tower. Oh, this is Cessna 53706. Uh, um, We were just underwater for like a second. (laughs) And I said, are you okay? And he's like, yes. Did you see that? Yeah, "Yeah, I saw that. You can't can't make that stuff up. But, you know, thank God he was fine. But it was something different, something that you don't see every day or experience every day. And, you know, I... I, I probably and I know I'll never see it again, but it was just it was an amazing thing to witness and be a part of. But he was a- now as an air traffic controller, I have to ask you this question because I am so deeply interested in the subject that it just has to be asked. Any UFOs? Well, or uh, that you're allowed to speak of at least. I can tell you for me. I don't know about UFOs. I can't. Well, unidentified flying objects is what that means. Right, right, so, right, right. Well, unidentified to the mass populace, not necessarily unidentified to everybody. Right, right. But when I now in Puerto Rico, I can tell you we would see things flying by on radar very quickly that we had not been talking to that we didn't weren't handed off to us. Um, some people say that they were top secret aircraft, and I have a tendency to believe that rather than... That's Occam's razor tends to be the more reasonable explanation. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. Because then the next thing I know, we're getting the U-2 bomber. So there you go. Where two people have to run out and hold the wings and then let go, and then the thing goes vertical. And so. Right, 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 right. Okay, yeah, I know what, I know what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, so I would say we've seen more <laughs> top secret stuff than anything. That's what I had. A, I had worked with a guy who was um, he's an ex-marine, and he had said that too. That all those people that are reporting UFO sightings and stuff, that it's it's the it's government projects right. that they're seeing. Yeah, that's what I believe it is. I think it's government, secret government projects or civilian projects signed off. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, because. Or do you think? Are, is it possible? Is it possible for any civilian project to do so, uh, something like that without the government even knowing well, about it? Well, think about the Virgin um, flight. Remember the rocket, and he's trying to get that, and he had that done. But guess what? You have to go through the government to get licensed to do anything. <laughs> okay, the but airspace. if you didn't care about the license. Right. They own the airspace. Oh, okay. So it, it, let's, if you didn't get that license, and let's say you flew this uh, craft, and if on if – 
let's put it this way if you're if you're seeing blips on your radar and it really is unidentified not a single person knows what this vehicle right. is I would imagine the base is going to be put on red alert and something's going to be tried. They're going to try to scramble this aircraft. That's correct. Something's going to go flying out to see what it is. That's your exactly right. right. Uh, and if, if if they're not doing that, then somebody knows what that, that is. is. Correct. Okay. Or I, it was too I, fast moving where you couldn't, you know, it was there. And yeah. You're just in awe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like Transformers, you know. What's the fastest object you've ever seen moving on your radar? Oh, my gosh. Um, I have no idea what it was, but it moved so fast. Um, before I could ask what it was, it was gone. Okay. Yeah, see, I'm always interested in stuff like that because there's always weird things that air traffic controllers in particular see on their radars that are end up not being explained. Right, right. And then there are things that, um, because they are coordinated with other airspace, it came through our airspace. It was top secret. Uh-huh. It was above my level, so somebody above me, like if I called the senior chief of, or I called the air operations duty officer, which is what we do when we want to report things like that, they say, oh, I know about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. And so then you're, oh, okay, long as somebody knew. A lot yeah. of times air traffic control tower supervisors or the radar controller may not have known exactly what was going on, but someone does. Someone always does. Right. Does, do upper brass get annoyed when you report things they already know about, or do they appreciate the fact that you're doing your no, job? No, they appreciate the fact that you're doing your job. Okay. Because okay. what wasn't, you know, again, yeah, you know, yeah. What, especially like, yeah, September 11th, we, we have, oh, yeah. there's, no, there's no getting by anymore. There's none of that. We don't know anything about it, so... Right. Now, I, have a, I saw the FAA is going to start putting out... Um, regulations on uh, civilian drones yes um here soon how dangerous are drones in in airport areas that you do you know of this situation right okay now? well let me let me make it let me make it um relevant for you okay. you get on the expressway every day knowing that certain things are not going to come across that express right imagine if you will that you're on your way to work driving down 495 or whatever highway you're on and a bunch of ATVs cut across perpendicular to the expressway. Right. And as you're driving, causing accidents, because that's what's going to happen. Because number yeah. one, they're not supposed to be on there. Number two, yeah. they're moving against the flow of traffic mm-hmm. and they're not equipped to go the speeds that they need to go to be able to be on this expressway. Right. Imagine the pain, right. death, and destruction that occurs as a result of these people deciding, just whatever reason, that they're going to do yep. this. That's what that would be like. Now, picture mm-hmm. that at 10,000, because, you know, people are saying, well, it, it, they're going to be dry, you know, they're only going to be flying at 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 feet. Bullshit. Yes. Bullshit number one. And number <laughs> I've seen them higher than right, that. Right, but imagine you're on your Southwest or what, United or even Spirit, you know, if they're still around, when you're taking off and this drone comes across and scares the bejesus out of your right. pilot. You crash and burn and we have to explain to your grandma or whoever that little Jimmy's not coming home because some knucklehead decided to drive his drone. Or for God's sakes, we know how, how people freak out. Imagine if one of these things just happened to fly by and one, like a couple passengers just caught a glimpse right. of it to the point where now every single passenger is freaking out on this plane. Right, because everybody has... Because there's a gremlin on the wing right, or something. Rem- like. Everybody remembers that <laughs> Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're scared exactly. to death because they're going to swear that's what that is. Or they remember September 11th and they know... Uh-huh that something's going to happen and, and ISIS and all these other people have been threatening to do stuff and everybody's in an uproar and scared to death because they don't know when the next wave of whatever it is they're afraid of is going to take place. Now, as a former Navy member, do you think a lot of that fear is misplaced or is it is it legitimate? It's legitimate. It's a legitimate threat. The only thing is, um, you know, I explain to people, pay attention to what's going on around you. Yes, they're in their, these other countries, but there's no force field around the United States. No. There is nothing stopping anyone from coming over here that has a legal right to be here. 
And how do we know they have a legal right? Because they bought a ticket. Right, because they're a human being, and that's the point. Right, of our that's country. the point. Everybody's welcome. Remember Ellis Island? That's, well, they're supposed right, to right. be. So they come <laughs> over. And then what? We're supposed to watch them because their names are different? No. I mean, if you think about it, they look at our 7 Elevens, our, 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 you know, our call centers, whatever. If we. If they're going to invade us, they've already invaded us. They've invaded since the 80s or whatever. And there are people making that claim that that's a real that's the real thing happening that they're invading us from right. within. Right. And if that's the case, we allowed them to come in and we weren't thinking about it because again, we've opened our borders to everybody as this country was founded on. So Right. Why would we change now? And that's where that's where a lot of people are scared. You'd be surprised yeah. at the number of the number one thing to do right now is to buy guns as uh -huh. possible at these shows. Yeah. The, I don't know if you watch cable TV late at night, but certain neighborhoods, uh, like there are certain. I don't know if what you know, but commercials are based on uh -huh. the di, di, you know the demographics of the that, that right, area. Right, right. So uh -huh. I was in um, northern Illinois and I saw a commercial that I've never seen anywhere else. And it was a commercial for this gun range. And they were saying to yeah. come down, that they had these specials for your family where you could teach your family how to shoot. That you could yeah. get all the guns that you wanted because the laws were getting ready to change and it's best to come down. Wow. Oh my God! Yeah, that right, one. Right. That one. I was yeah. in Chicago for a whole week. Never saw that commercial once. Yeah. I live in yeah. uh, uh, Northern Maryland, and I saw that commercial here, but I've never yes. seen it in Baltimore. I've never seen it. I live in rural Central Pennsylvania. Right. We have right, that and there are areas <laughs> where they are playing that commercial because you need to be prepared for whatever's coming. You know, right. I don't know who those whatevers are, but obviously they do not. Um, those whatevers aren't a concern in urban areas. I guess they figure urban areas must have all the guns they possibly could use. So therefore, it's no need to send those commercials out. Well, hold on. I can tell you, I can tell you as somebody who lives in one of those areas exactly who's coming for us, quote unquote. Um and it's anybody who's not right. white. Yeah, and that's that. That's really that's the reality of it. And it's uh, you know, it takes white individuals having to say it because we white people won't listen to individuals who aren't white saying it because they just see that as like a class warfare kind of thing. White people who also see it need to come out and say this is happening too. Well, because it's it's so clear, like especially with the president. There is no president who has ever in the history of the United States been treated the way this president Never. Has. I have never. And I have seen everybody from Nixon. I remember yeah. Nixon was disgraced and he he was still called Mr. President. I know. Even after even after he resigned in disgrace yes. and yes. left, they still called him Mr. Yes. President. You would never right. hear and the thing is it's sad. It's very, very sad. And I won't, I, you know, as a as an employee, uh, you know, I have to be careful about yeah, my yeah. link. Yeah, yeah. I won't drag right. it too but much. But what I this. will say yeah. is this. What saddens me is the, is the current status of our country. We have become a divided country based yeah, on color. And it's like we took 50 steps backwards for every year. Since the Voting Act, right? Yeah. Oh my God. The the, the Supreme Court just uh, overruled that case that um, allowed. Uh, was it? It was the states that had the Jim Crow right. laws, and uh, we had special voting regulations on them that they, if they wanted to change their voting procedures, they had to get approval from the federal government because they had past records of mistreating right. their Mississippi, voting base. Alabama. Yeah. Texas. Louisiana, Texas, Arizona. Yeah, yeah. So they take it to the Supreme Court and say, no, this isn't fair because you're treating us different than the other states. Right. right? 
and they win the case. And I do see a little bit of validity in that because, yeah, it's something imposed on states that isn't imposed on all of them. But that's because you guys have a history of it. So, I mean, I, we can get into the semantics of I, that. But that what happened – it was like an hour after that ruling, Texas passes the most like restrictive voter ID right. act in the country. Right. And we're back to – and we're, again, we've taken 50 steps backwards in this country. And one of the things that I keep trying to remind both uh, everybody that when anything happens in this country, we band together. Mm -hmm. But if you push a group, any group aside and say that only this section is truly American, we forget that none of this, none of us, black, Asian, Hispanic, none of us were here originally. Except the Indians. Mm-hmm. So, yep. so unless you're Native American, shut right. up. And we're all <laughs> guests, whether by force or we walked in or rowed a boat in. We're all we're guests. through some smallpox blankets. Right, over. we're all guests of the Indian population that is native to this country. The sad part is, is for my children, my granddaughter. I look at these kids and I'm I'm scared. I'm scared because not because there are there are very few pockets of individuals that have amped themselves up throughout the years. There was a yes. time when the Ku Klux Klan was active. They have since backed mm-hmm. off a little bit. Well, I li- uh, to to that point, State College is about a half hour from me, and they have the most active right, KKK right. membership again, in the country. Again, there was <laughs> right, but they used to be an army of older white Americans. They yeah, are now yeah. appealing to the younger ones, and yes. um, you have your um, what do they call them? Because they have their own show now. Um, ah, what is that called? The people that are building the shelters, survivalists. That's the new thing. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. they're preparing for all-out war. They, the doomsday preppers. Doomsday preparations. All right. right. And you have these people, these extreme couponers. That's what I keep calling. Them. I said yeah. you talk about extreme couponers. Those are the people <laughs> who are ready for the for whatever's right. coming. The zombie, zombie apocalypse. apocalypse. Now you laugh at that, but the federal government <laughs> has a, a website, the zombie apocalypse, and how. For that. I know. Well, the zombie well, apocalypse. And the whole purpose of that is to get people to. Do yeah, but it's a pandemic. So I mean, if you think uh-huh. about it, zombies, you know, were so allegedly created yeah. because of a virus or whatever, you know, uh-huh. Ebola, whatever you want. The whole idea of that world in general, just be prepared for something. To right, happen. but see, again, the sad part is that we're gonna, you know, I, I'm a Christian, so I'm counting on Jesus. <laughs> To yeah. keep this country together. I can't count on man. I can't say, you know, blacks, white, Hispanic, whatever. All I'm saying is we need Jesus because the devil has been busy and we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our leaders, including our president and Congress. We need prayer because the bottom line is at the end of the day, we're still Americans. And if someone attacks this country, we're going to band together and we're going to whoop ass. And I did say that on the radio. And yes, I am a Christian in the name of Jesus (laughs) to keep this country together because it was founded on godly principles. But again, our weapons are not of this world. Our weapons are prayer because this isn't a this isn't a, a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle for our future. Well, I believe it was uh, Ronald Reagan that gave a whole, an entire speech about um, the about how the world it it seems like the world will only unite if we will be faced with uh, an outside force or threat, uh, such as like a, an alien encounter or something like that. That only then will we uh, dismiss all of our petty differences. Right. Like um, what was it? Independence Day. Yeah. Or, you know, the uh, Transformers or something. It's always something. If you look at those movies, you know, that's what it was always about. Yep. 
And I do think I do think that's the case because it's the same way with a country. The country can be divided as hell until it's attacked. Then all of a sudden you see ninety eight percent approval ratings or right. something. You know. And and that's all because, you know, you've you've attacked us now. It doesn't matter that we hate each other, but the fact that you hate us is not what? okay. <laughs> We're allowed. It's like a brother and sister fight. They're allowed to fight, but if someone else picks on your brother and sister, that's not. Yeah, cool. I remember my mother saying, "If they mess with your little brother, whoop the heck out of them." <laughs> All right, we we spent this entire time talking about everything but your book, and we have about uh, six, seven minutes yet. So I want to get back to your book, and I want to you, you to tell the audience a little bit about it and why they should. Oh buy my it. gosh! Well, against company policy is a workplace suspense novel where the lead character is a human resources professional. Her okay. daughter goes to, the lead character's name is Gertrude. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Her daughter goes to apply for a job, puts her hand on the doorknob to put her application in, and there's blood on the doorknob. And from there, all hell breaks loose. People okay. at this office, somebody got kidnapped, somebody got beat up, someone else, um, was tied up. There's a lot going on in this story. Is the answer that 9/11 was an inside job? <laughs> no, no. Again, this is a novel. It is, it is fiction, but it is a, a great story, fast-moving story, mm-hmm. where you're following these characters trying to figure out who the heck has lost their mind up in HR and who's working against company policy, because human resources professionals are supposed to be the rules keepers. So we can't do anything wrong. And this... What happens when... Yeah, when we do, then all hell breaks loose. That's why I said once we lose it, then there's no hope for the company. And this one is the first in a series. And um, I'm I'm enjoying working on the next one in the series. There There are some characters in there that are just so rich and so wonderful to have in my head and to put on paper. There's a lead... Like I said, the lead character, her name is Gertrude. She's been in human resources. She's tall. She's thick. She's fine. She loves to laugh. She will beat you with her shoe and pray for you in the next breath. <laughs> right. Well, I actually have to give you a little bit of a compliment here. I mean, I, it's, I mean, it's just me. I'm nobody special. But I have to give you a little bit of a compliment because in a world where it's almost impossible to find an original idea anymore, I don't think I've ever seen a book, movie, TV show that was a workplace murder mystery. No, no, it is the first of its kind. So I got you know, my hat's off to that, to you know, inventing a new genre. Thank you. Um, and I, th- I find that interesting because I think a lot of people have this fear about their job. Yes, I mean because the last thing you want to do, because imagine, and in the first chapter, in the first couple of pages, is how this book stars. Let me tell you, I'm a reader, longtime reader, and I read on average, I used to read five to ten books a week. Um, Yeah, but I can't read because I remember everything that I read. I had to stop reading once I started um, writing my books. But in the first chapter, we're talking about this woman, she's coming in because she's got to meet with the union. She has this negotiation getting ready to go on. She's coming into work. She's dressed in her suit. She comes in and these cops are standing outside and she's like, well, what in the heck? And they're like, well, no, you can't go in there. We're putting everybody in the conference room. She goes in the conference room and there are all these people are all upset. People are talking about somebody got tied up. Somebody got beat up. You're not expecting this when you come to your job. And right. then, yeah, well, no one is. Yeah. And, and that's the thing about workplace violence. It's so unexpected. It's you expect people to get mad, to talk about it, to drink at a bar over it, to do whatever they're going to do and take it out on their personal family or whatever, but you're not expecting people to come into a job and and do these kinds of things. Well, I think that may also depend on the kind of job you're working. Here's the thing. Human resources and jobs like that that are tedious and deal with emotional, especially people in high emotional states, is pretty much most of the job. Um, I feel those individuals are. We need to take care of those individuals because it it, it can be very easy for one of them to right. Snap. And and that's why it's important that we. That's why one of the reasons it's stressful. Yes, and that's why human resources actually exist because 
we're the buffer between the first line supervisor and that employee at the end when it goes sour. Our name is in that letter that says, if you have any questions, contact HR because they're pointing the finger right. at us. Our job is actually a little bit more dangerous than the, because uh, they don't go shooting up the supervisor. They come super shooting up HR because right. that's, that's whose right. name was in the letter. It said, that last uh -huh. line says, if you have a question, go see Hattie. No, don't come see Hattie. Go back to the supervisor that gave me this letter. But that's right. why we exist which is why I wanted to draw attention to it because there you'd be surprised how many human resources offices have one way in and one way out. And that was my biggest concern right. because unfortunately I was a victim of a workplace violence issue because someone that we had to let go, just some random substitute who got a letter from me that says, you know, this is what it is. She would stalk me. I would see her at job fairs when I was doing job fairs. She would come up and she, this little old lady was 65 years old, little bitty Christian who would cuss you out. And I mean, cuss you out and then yeah. say, I'll pray for you. And, you know, and she came yeah. up one day and I was at a uh, festival thanks. or a fair and um, I'm sitting there and I had this wheel that you could spin to win prizes. And so there's all this noise. Right. Click, 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 click. So I didn't pay attention when I heard the click. And when I looked, she had a blade. She had snapped open a blade and said she was going to stab me. Now, she obviously wasn't paying attention to who was on my right and who was on my left. Because in the booth to my right was the county police. In the booth to my left were the state troopers. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. but that's just how insane it was. But yeah, exactly. That's somebody in that state of mind isn't thinking no. logically. No, they're not. They're not no they're they are bull blinders. They see red and that's and right. nothing else. Right. And so that's that's and, why it's important to be careful to have those conversations. And that's one of the things that I coach supervisors through. Um, how to have these conversations, when to have these conversations. Don't have these conversations right before or right after a holiday. That's just crazy to me. Right. I had somebody come to me last week trying to fire somebody the day before Thanksgiving. Are you kidding? What? Right, right. That's asking Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? This person is right before Christmas. He, they got, they have plans. They got, they got to pay mortgages. Yeah. I mean, I understand. I understand the bottom line. I understand. And yeah, your yeah. but let's be is your life right, worth more than the bottom right, line though because this is the wrong time of year to take somebody's or is treating that how about this and, and even beyond that because that's a fear-based motivator and i don't like fear-based motivators so even beyond that is treating this individual like a human with some kind of respect and decency right. worth more than the bottom line and to me that is right and the challenge is with managers is trying to get them to understand you can do what you're going to do. It doesn't because one of the things that is, is frustrating for human resources professionals is that we have no we have no authority. We can't hire. Right. We can't fire. We can't make these supervisors do anything. We're just advisory. So we get guidance. OK. And that's one of the challenges because they don't have to take our advice. They can totally disregard whatever we say and do whatever it is they feel like they're supposed to do. Then would they have to call us in to clean it up afterwards, you know, yeah. but that's the challenge. That's one. Of How sweet is that? I told you so. Moment. Oh, it's so sweet. It, it, <laughs> but at the same time, how much did it cost us? How much did it cost us in third party appeals cost right. us in attorney fees? How much did it cost us in settlements? We could have resolved this issue for twenty two dollars. Or maybe other employees that are now upset because they were friends with that individual. That you right. And so you have to manage the fallout. And that's why it's important that you you deal with human resources, that you come to us so that we can lay out how it's going to go down. So that way, when you're making choices, you have all of the pros, the cons. You know what the costs involved are going to be and you know what some of the backlash is going to be. And therefore, you're more informed. Because a lot of times I'm diffusing the manager's emotional um, attachment to whatever's going on because they're human. 
They take it personal. They want to get back. They want to get somebody. How dare them? That's, and you have to remind them, okay, you've had that human moment. Now I need for you to step away, take a deep breath, listen to what I'm saying to you, follow the guidance that I'm providing, and this is how it can turn out well. Right. So I talk a lot right. of managers off the ledge. This is how I put it. Mm-hmm. How do most managers? Now I have to. I don't. Have you ever watched The yes, Office? Yes, I have seen it. Okay. Do are most managers receptive to HR as a Michael Scott, where they just hate everyone in HR? Well, automatically because they're from well there are some people that hate us because we won't allow them to do what they want to do regardless of whether it's legal or not yeah which is what michael scott was he was just he just called human resources the funny the fun duddies you know where we pour water all over your wet dream that's our that's what i tell people that's my job (laughs) i am killer Uh, that's me i'm the dream killer i love it (laughs) i love it I like I like that. I would have to. I might. That's no that problem. One. That's a free one. Yeah, that's free. Next one. That's right. Hundred fifty dollars. Hundred fifty dollars. All right. I'll start saving. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Um, it's been really fun to talk. Oh, to thank you. you. I've enjoyed talking to you too. And let your listeners know if they're interested in purchasing the book, uh, which is called Against Company Policy. They can go to my website, which is HattieKnight.com, H-A-T-T-Y-E-K-N-I-G-H-T.com. I made it easy so you could remember. And if you don't, if you forget, you can always Google me. I have like 700,000 entries, I'm sure. Absolutely. And when I post this episode up in the description and also in every post that I put around, that link will be in there, too, for everyone who wants to find it. It should be right there in any info that I put this episode. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Yes. Thank you. Well, I will let you go. I'm sure you are a busy woman who has things to get back to. And uh, we will be definitely keeping in touch because I think maybe down the road here it'd be nice to have you. Oh, please do. Feel feel free. I'll cancel you in. I (laughs) definitely. All right. Thank you.